uh, we're, we're in a week of preparation. Next week's a big weekend for us. We start our fall campaign. It's a growth campaign. Every year as a church, we try to go through a, 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 a focused study for about eight weeks where we all grow together. And uh, this year, the fall campaign is called Perfect Love. And uh, it's experiencing the power of perfect love. We're going to study 1 John, which uh, teaches us about God's love for us and how that love needs to transform our lives. And so I want you to experience that. Next week is our kickoff weekend. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. And then we go um, uh, right up until Thanksgiving with that focused study. And so we've got some things for you to kind of enhance that experience. We're going to have a memory verse. We're going to have um, a reading plan. So you can read through 1 John. We've got life groups that are going to start uh, next week and, um, and life groups will go through a study that's prepared and you'll do the, a week ahead of the message, you'll study um, the, the passage for the week. And so you'll, you'll kind of get an opportunity in that group to study it. And then you come to weekend service and really maximize your growth during this series. So I'm really prayerful that you're prepared for that and ready to, ready to jump in. And so this week's a week of preparation. Um, and so I'm calling the message today. Ready, set, grow. God wants you to grow. Growth is a big part of life in every area. And your spiritual life, I think, is the most important for you. You need to grow there. It's going to affect the rest of your life. And so this week, kind of the subtitle of the message is The Making of a Masterpiece. The Making of a Masterpiece. I wonder if you've ever seen a masterpiece. Uh, Something that you thought was just a work of art. Beautiful thing. Uh, maybe a beautiful painting or, or something that you really were in awe of. I know for me personally, the masterpiece that I love or the masterpieces that I love are not paintings and works of art, all right? No offense there, but for me, they are things that are functional, that work, that are designed with excellence. They do a great job at what they were designed for and they're aesthetically pleasing. They have a, an aesthetic to them that I really appreciate. And so for me, the masterpieces that I appreciate are all over and I try to purchase them whenever I can. And uh, when we moved here um, and moved uh, to this area, we were able to purchase uh, some property, a little bit of an acreage. And, and so I've kind of got a little farm. And one of the things that I did in preparation and moving here and, and uh, um, excited about having a farm was that I needed some boots. And so there was a pair of boots I'd wanted for a long time and the boots were made by a company called White. And White Company is out of Spokane, Washington. And so the reason I'm in work clothes today is because we're preparing to work, because growing is work, but I'm also wearing those boots this morning um, because I enjoy them and they're comfortable and uh, I really like them. I really like them. Um, I, I'm really proud of them, all right? You may think that's weird. Sorry, but I do, okay? So um, that's your pastor. I'm just kind of a regular guy. And I, I can get geeked out about stuff and, and work boots are one of them. So White Company is not just a story of, a, of a, a boot, right? Make a great boot. But it's really a story of American success. It's part of what has made America great is this story. Because the White family spans three generations All right, three generations of American pride and entrepreneurism and drive towards excellence. And the result are the boots that I'm wearing that are just some of the best boots in the world. And so um, the White Company, here's the story. They start before the Civil War, (coughs) 1840s. And the guy that started the company was a guy named Edward, Edward White. 
Now, part of my affection for the White Company is based on the story, because I really like the story, but it starts in a part of the country that my roots come from, and that is on the East Coast in the state of Connecticut. Uh, my dad grew up in Connecticut, in a small town, Canterbury, Connecticut, rural, um, heart, heart of the country, soul of the country, American. My uh, grandpa, his dad served in World War II. Um, his mom was, uh, worked in government. She was a treasurer and, and a tax collector. And they were a great couple and they were part of a little church, Calvary Bible Church. And um, they raised my dad to know and love God and and they were pillars in their community. But uh, Connecticut, so of course Connecticut's part of my heart. That's where I come from. And so Edward White starts a company in Connecticut. Now he's just a shoemaker and he kind of does repairs, kind of like out of his home and, um, and he has ambitions of having a company, but shoe repair doesn't grow a company. It just keeps it going, keeps the lights on. And so he knew he had to make shoes and sell them. And so he started making boots. And of course he had boot jacks, which was a form and he's making boots the best he can. And he's driven to get better and he's trying to figure out how to get better. But it, uh, Edward has a son named John. John's a second generation and John takes to the same trade. He starts to learn to make boots and he has, unlike a lot of second generation families, he has a drive to get better and to grow the business. You know, that thing they say about generations, the first generation is the builder, second generation is the protector, Third generation is the squanderer, you know. Um, so no, not in this family. It's totally different. The first generation kind of is the smallest thinking one in the family, which is Edward. John has a bigger vision for the company. And he starts to realize that there's a need for boots in the south, right? In the Smoky Mountains, Blue Ridge Mountains, down in Shenandoah Valley, there's, there's mining and there's logging. And so he moves the family, John does, down to Virginia, and he starts striving to make the best boots that he can make in the whole region. And he grows the business and the awareness, and he perfects the boot. It gets better and better and better. And these guys are using them, and, and he has the best product in the valley. And then he has a son named Otto. And Otto also takes to the business. He's excited about it. And Otto is the most ambitious one in the family. Otto's exceptional. Um, Edward was great, kind of just a small mom and pop deal. John kind of kept that same idea of, of just a small uh, one-man show, but he grew it and he got better at it. Otto has ambition and vision. <laughs> he wants a company, right? He wants to have, uh, he wants to take care of a region. And so they're looking for opportunity around the country and they realize that the greatest opportunity because they're making great boots. And honestly, in that South, in the part of the region, they don't have the money to really buy the boots they wanna make because they've worked this craft and they've gotten a, a, an excellent boot. And so they realize that out West, in Oregon, right? Washington, there's logging and there's, um, there's uh, affluence and prosperity. And so they get the idea we need to move out West. And so John moves his family West and from the Shenandoah Valley, they head west and they head northwest and they get to um, Idaho and they stop at Wardner, Idaho. It's about 70 miles from Spokane. So they're kind of up there in the finger, whatever it's called, the panhandle, I guess it goes all the way to Canada of Idaho. You know, it starts wide and then it gets narrow up to the top and there's Montana and there's Washington on either side. And so they move uh, to that area, Wardner, Idaho, and, they, um, and Otto begins to take to it. And he's 
about 20 when they get there, 1900 is when they arrive in Wardner. And so he has ambition and drive and he wants to grow it. And he's working at perfecting the boot even better, making a better boot. And, uh, and so he gets the idea, we need to move to Spokane. That's a hub. Spokane's a railroad town and it has the ability to go east and west. And I can cover a whole region with my boots. I can sell to Montana and Idaho and Washington and Oregon. And I could cover a region and really grow this company. And so Otto moves the company to Spokane. Not sure that his dad goes with him, but his dad, John, keeps his kind of his little shop, but Otto starts to build a company. Um, and within a few years, he's got the white boot company and he's got a, a brick and mortar and he's got a warehouse and he's stocking it with all the boots he can and he's selling through um, distributors and through uh, you know, stores around a region. And over 20 years, Otto builds and grows the business he, uh, he develops and perfects the boot. He spends 20 years studying the human foot and he's after comfort. He wants a boot that guys that are working all day on their feet and striving hard and working hard. Their legs don't get tired, their feet don't get tired. And so he develops an arch support system. He, uh, he invents the boot and moves it from boot jacks to custom made hand sewn boots. And so the boots I bought in 2019 are the boots that Otto perfected in the 1930s. And his work at that company allowed them to get through the depression, continue to grow and thrive. And honestly, I believe he was able to create and develop through his striving and efforts, the best, one of the best boots in the world. And uh, I really like them. I like them. In my mind, they're a masterpiece, right? They're a masterpiece. You know, the Bible says that you are a masterpiece. You are created by God. You've been designed by him, perfected by him. And unlike us humans, we have to work and work and work to make something great. Got to spend, um, you know, Otto died in 1972, right? So uh, it took a lot of time for him to perfect a product that was great. And uh, if we can get excited about stupid boots, right? How much more excited should we be about you and I, people whom God created? And unlike us, God creates perfection the first time. He gets it right the first time because he is perfect. And so when he envisioned you and I and, and invented us, came up with us, he came up with perfection. Ephesians chapter two is what we're looking at this morning. Three verses. We'll look at some more than that, but this is what we're focused on. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verses 8, 9, and 10 say this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. There it is. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So I'm wearing work boots and work clothes today because we got to go to work. And that's what next week's about, a campaign of growth it means we're going to have to work. But God's created us for it. We like to work. We are made to work. The Greek word that's translated masterpiece in this passage is the Greek word uh, poema. Poema. It is where we get our English words poem 
and poetry from. And what it means is something made. Something made. And in this context, something made by God, the God who created everything. And so the first truth that you need to get into your heart and mind, if you're going to realize who you were made to be, listen, if you're going to realize who you were made to be, why you're here. So you need to know that you're not on, you're not here on this earth on accident. You aren't here because, um, your mom had a moment of weakness in high school in the backseat of a car, right? Had a moment of passion with some dude. That's not why you're here, okay? Those things are part of our, how we come into existence. I get it. We all have a story. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Some of us are disappointed by it. Some of us, some of us feel like we're an accident. You're not an accident. <laughs> you're here on purpose, for a purpose, by a sovereign, all-powerful God who invented you, came up with you, created you before he made the world. You got to know that. If you're going to realize your um, purpose, your mission, the reason you're here, the first thing you got to get straight is that God made you. Okay, buckle up. We're going to look at some scripture. We're going to look at a few scriptures. Because this, you need to get your heart and head around this. It's so important. You're going to miss the reason you're here if you don't understand that God's the one that created you. So Psalm 139, written by David second king of Israel. He is a powerful king, a godly king, a man after God's own heart. He wrote these words about God's awareness of him, the relationship he had with God. Listen to this. Psalm 139, start in verse 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. He's speaking to God, right? Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. You watched me, or excuse me, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Listen. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. See, God sees all of time at the same time. He's outside of time. If you want to have your mind blown, think about this. God doesn't, he's not inside time with us. He made it. He's outside of it. So he sees all of it the same moment, the beginning and the end. It's all the same to him. For us, we are living out our lives, but he's already seen it. And he has been a part of the writing of your story. He's been a part of it. Jesus sends his disciples out to do a mission, tell people about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 10, he gives them some instructions. But in the midst of these instructions, he gives us a little more insight as to God's awareness of us. On a personal on a personal basis, God's awareness of you, I just want you to understand this. It should blow your mind um, how much God is aware of you, how much he knows about you. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus speaking. Don't be afraid, he says to his disciples, of those who want to kill your body. Why? They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows, one copper coin? 
But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Of all the stinking birds in the world, sorry, of all the many birds, beautiful birds, they're beautiful. Why did I say stink? I don't know why I did that. All the beautiful birds in the world, when you speak for a living, you're going to make some mistakes. I, I don't know why that came out. I love birds. Um, I love them. So all the birds in the world, uh, there's not one bird that falls to the ground. Uh, every once in a while, I find a bird that's tried to fly through my house. It runs into a window, bam, falls to the ground. My cats love those days. But, but listen, not one bird falls, but God doesn't know it. You do not swat one mosquito on your arm that's sucking your blood, but God doesn't know it. Do you see God's awareness of creation? God's awareness of what he's made. Verse 30, and the very hairs on your head, whether it's many or few, are all numbered. You do not have a hair follicle that quits working that God doesn't know about it. Is that crazy? This is the God that made you, the God that oversees this world. He's not a distant God. He knows what's going on in your life. Jesus says, don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Paul, the apostle, gets an opportunity to speak to a city council in Athens, a city full of pagans. They don't know God. They don't believe in God. He gets a chance to stand in front of the city council and talk to him about Jesus. And this is what he says in Acts 17, again, revealing to us the nature of God's oversight of our world, his involvement in our lives. So Paul, standing before the city council, addresses them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you're very religious in every way. For I was walking along and saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription uh, on it to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God, listen, who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him, listen, we live and move and exist. In him. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold, silver, stone, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. 
In Genesis, the Bible tells us how God created us, how our existence came to be. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We know that our world in the academic realm and in the scientific realm, at some point years ago, decided we weren't sure about God and, and maybe there wasn't a God and started to look to the physical world to find the answers to our origins and, and try to study um, scientifically. And so as we, uh, we live in an amazing time where science and the, the discoveries through the scientific efforts, which I think are great, uh, they're changing. They're changing. In 2013, an article from the Live Science website, right? Um, it's just an article that reflects a, um, or a, a post on the website from an article that was written in a, in a journal. It says this, almost every man alive can trace his origins to one man who lived about 135,000 years ago. New research suggests. I don't know if it's new. I mean, this book's like thousands of years old, but whatever. All right. Um, and that ancient man likely shared the planet with the mother of all women. <laughs> Here we go. Now we're getting somewhere. The findings detailed today, August 1st, in the Journal of Science, come from the most complete analysis of the male sex chromosome or the Y chromosome to date. The results overturn earlier research, which suggested that men's most recent common ancestor lived just 50,000 to 60,000 years ago. Okay. So while holding on to their crumbling old earth evolutionary theory by their fingernails, they're acknowledging that what the Bible has said for thousands of years is true. What a time that we live in. What a time we live in. I want to say welcome to the party. Thanks for coming to play. Good to have you here, right? Sorry, a little sarcastic. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, give us important knowledge that we need to fulfill our destiny. In this life, there are two truths that these verses teach us. And obviously the first one, God made you. The second one is that God saved you. Let's read again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. God saved you means you needed saving. Maybe you haven't been saved yet. I don't know. I don't know where you're at today, but you need saving. This is clear from the scriptures. It's clear from the Bible, and it's clear if you think about it from our life. We know that this world isn't right. We know that we're not right. We know something's wrong. We have a sense of it deep within our beings that things aren't right. And we're not right. We're not acting right. We don't always know why until we come into uh, an encounter with the living God through the scriptures. We find out about Jesus and what he came to reveal to us. But, but, but that's the truth. And we say things like nobody's perfect and, and, you know, oh, can't get everything right and, you know, gonna make mistakes. 
And so we kind of soften it up a little bit, but the truth is that we do not live right, we do not act right, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others, and we live at a level less than we were made to live. So God saved you by his grace. Grace is a very important concept. Grace is unmerited favor, getting something that you didn't deserve. Our ego and our sin nature give us the idea that we're entitled to things. We're entitled. The truth is we deserve nothing. We need to understand this. We're not here because of our own volition. We did not make ourselves. We did not create or invent this world. We didn't do anything to bring ourselves here. We are here because God has given us existence. He is the source of everything. And so this salvation, this saving that we become aware of our need for is once again given to us through nothing we've done for ourselves. Grace. Getting something you don't deserve. And then it says, so we are saved, God saved you by his grace when you believed. What does believing mean? Well, what he's talking about there is what the rest of the New Testament teaches is that believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the Messiah, the savior of the world, that he came from heaven. He's not just a man, but he was a God man. He lived a perfect sinless life. He was born of a virgin, reflecting the fact that God is the one that placed him in Mary's womb. He's altogether different and he's come to us or came to us to reveal God to us. He walked among us, he healed people. How is it that Jesus could touch an eyeball and restore it when it was born without function? Well, the way he did that is because he was the creator of that eyeball. John's gospel tells us that Jesus is the one who spoke this world and this universe into existence. Jesus is the one who created the material world. So he can have, uh, he has no problem fixing it, right? Recreating it. He made it. And so Jesus was able to do these things, again, proving to us that what he said about himself and God were true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we've got to believe about Jesus that he's God. And the next important belief is that he died on a cross, that death paid for our sin, your sin, payment, atonement for it, and that he was buried in a tomb and he rose on the third day. The resurrection, just like Paul told um, the Athens folks, was proof, evidence, final, sealed it, that Jesus is God. He is who he said he was and everything he said was true. And so coming to grips with the reality of the resurrection is super important for you if you're gonna believe. You can't believe in Jesus if you don't believe in the resurrection. How do you do that? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, here's an amazing thing. The eyewitness accounts of him and all the evidence is in here. 1 Corinthians 15 lays it all out. The people that saw him after the resurrection, 500 people saw him at one time. They still can't be refuted by people that are skeptics and hate Jesus and don't want it to be true. They come up against the evidence in 1 Corinthians 15. It's overwhelming. What do you do with that? I heard one guy say, wow, we don't even know if Jesus existed. All we have is four eyewitness accounts in the Bible. (sighs) All right. God saved you by grace through faith. You believe Jesus was who he said he was and you put your trust in him that he is the one who can save you and that when you stand before God someday 
and ask God, God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? You can say, because I put my trust in Jesus. I believe in him. His death on my behalf is what I'm trusting in. His blood paid for my sin. You can't take credit for this, Paul says. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Isn't it funny that every world religion says you gotta work for your salvation, work for it, work for it. You can earn it, but none of them tell you how much work you gotta do when you've done enough. None of them do. No one says, okay, if you do this much, then, then you'll get in. It's always like, well, try real hard, work real hard, do all that. They'll give you the list of things, but no confidence that you've done enough ever. Feels like manipulation to me. I don't know, but that's the game. And the Bible tells us that's exact opposite is true. You can't work for your salvation. You can't earn it. It plays to our ego to think we can earn it and work for it. Makes me think I'm better than other people. But when it's a gift given to me, well, I'm the same as everybody else. But there's peace in that. There's truth in that. And that's the truth of what scripture teaches. Boasting about it's not the point. God saved you. You are lost in your sin. We are as human beings. Adam and Eve sinned. And that's affected all of us. We're under the curse of sin. Because of that sin, we're condemned. Our identity is our sin. And we're headed for hell. We're going to be judged, as Paul said. We know it. That's why we're scared of death. We're scared to face that judgment. We don't know if we passed the test. We don't know if we've done enough. Like Ace said, the rancher I worked with um, uh, in in Montana when I uh, learned about white boots, right? It's like, uh, uh, you know, he said, um, I hope... When I, get, when I die, I'll go up uh, in the sky, there'll be the scales. Here's the good I've done, here's the bad, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad. Once again, you can just never know. You go into the next life with uncertainty. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we're supposed to glorify God as human beings. And glorify God means to reflect him. I don't know if you ever had a bicycle with reflectors on it, but reflectors just shine back light. That's what we're supposed to be, reflectors of God. The moon is a reflector in the sky, right? It reflects the sun's light. This is what we're supposed to do. That's what it means to glorify God is to reflect him, his character, his nature, who he is. But we don't. We don't. We fall short of that. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, a spiritual death for all eternity. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I hope that you put your trust in Jesus. I hope you've done the work to find out if you can believe in the resurrection. That you can believe who Jesus said he was and he really is. And that his work for us is enough to save you. Because you need saving. You need to know that with 100% certainty that you have been saved. And when you die and you stand before God, you pass the test, you have the right answer, right? That you know Jesus. See, being saved is a beginning point. And the reason for that is that God wants to do something in you and through you with your life. He has a vision and a purpose for your life. There's a reason you're here and there's things that you're supposed to do and accomplish that are amazing, 
They'll change the world for good. And that's why the next verse tells us that what God wants to do after he's saved you is God does his work through you. Look at verse Look at verse 10, Ephesians 2. For we are God's masterpiece, poema, something made by God, right? We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation. The sin that is a part of your life and has been tied to your identity has been cut away. That's what the New Testament says. Paul says been, it's been cut away from you. You are no longer your sin. You've been set free. You're a new creation. You are the person that God made you to be. He intended you to be. You've been transformed. You've been set free. You no longer have to live in sin. You can now live in the life and the identity that Jesus intended you for, uh, for you to be. It's amazing. You're a new creation. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things, the good works he planned for us long ago. Before you were created, God wanted to do good through you, in you. And through Jesus, you can do that good. You and I can walk through this life and do the work God wants us to do. It's amazing. It takes training to be able to do that. Training to learn how to do God's work. Um, trusting in Christ is the beginning point, becoming a disciple. But a disciple is a follower. And so Jesus said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, you want to get life. You want to be alive. He said, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And this is a process of growing and being trained. And you and I need to be trained. And so at Mitchell Berean, we have a lot of training opportunities for you. We don't want you to just come to church here. We don't want you to just come and, and, and listen, though that's important. We want you to grow. We want you to become a disciple who's growing, who can live your life doing the good God created you to do. And so what do we have? Well, we have classes that are, are meant to help teach you because learning is part of the process. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, right? And that means learning the gospel, learning about who Jesus is, what he's done for me, what I need to do. Then I trust in him, I become a disciple. Then Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So you and I need to learn to obey what Jesus has to say about us and for us and how we need to live. And this takes training. And so we have classes 9.30 to 10.30 every Sunday. There's enough room for all of you to be in a class, to study and learn, to begin to grow, to begin to um, learn to obey Jesus. Next, we have a shape class, which we, uh, we offer from time to time. And it's designed to help you see how your entire life has been put together and designed by God to be able to serve and do his work. The S, it's an acronym, SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E. I'm not a good speller, but I can spell SHAPE. So uh, the S stands for spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians teaches us that every believer, when you trust Christ, there is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit given to you. There's a gift that you've been given so you can serve other believers and you can serve in the church. Heart is the H, passion. You have passions that get awakened in you, that, that are in you, just a passion to help and to do something. Uh, just like um, our friend that shared today about um, foster parenting. There's a passion in her that was awakened and look how God's using her to open the door in this community for the church to get involved, for Christians to help, for the foster care program to change, affecting the lives of people. This is the work of God that you and I get to participate in. So we've got to find our heart or passion. Then A is abilities. 
abilities are tied to your talents that God put in you. And then you develop those talents into abilities. You learn abilities. You acquire skills. You develop, right? Um, the White family developed the ability to make boots at, the, at, at a world-class level, right? And so um, that's abilities. And so you have abilities. And those abilities can, use, can be used to do God's work. Then P is for personality. Who are you? Who has God made you to be? E is experiences. And what we find is the most powerful experiences in doing God's work are the painful experiences, the hard experiences, where God shapes us and softens us and teaches us to follow him and live for him. And so these are the things that we learn in that class. We have ministries that you can serve in. Got a table out in the back as you leave um, with all the ministries in the church. Part of growing is learning to serve. If you don't learn to serve, you can't do God's work. And the place you learn to serve, because serving doesn't come naturally to us, we learn to serve in the church. That's part of why Jesus made the church, to teach us to serve. Serving is a different posture. It's a different position, a different attitude, right? And look at people in life. If you're not going through life looking for the needs of others, you're not gonna be able to serve them. And so in the church, we learn to do it. And so I wanna encourage you, consider signing up, participating in a ministry here at Mitchell Berean so you can learn to serve. We have midweek opportunities to grow. We have Awana. Awana is for our kids. We had the kickoff this last week. I got to teach the kids about memorizing the word of God from Psalm 119. How does a young man avoid sin? A young woman avoid sin? Well, they memorize God's word. Psalm 119, verse 11, I, have, I will hide your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. So kids memorizing God's words, powerful. Your kids need to be in Awana. You have neighbor kids that need to be in Awana. They need to get God's word in their heart. I told the kids I'm 53 years old and the verses I remember today, I learned in Awana and I was not a good Awana student, okay? Teachers got frustrated with me. I didn't learn any verses or I didn't get any awards. But over time I was in there and I memorized verses. They stuck in my heart and mind. And so I have those today and they've helped me follow God. You need to get your kids, your neighbor kids. You need to get somebody here to Awana. We got a great team. We had like 75 kids here. We could probably handle 75 more. Don't tell John and Christa I said that, but we could handle some more kids. I know we could. It's such a great ministry. We have our youth group that meets, Rhyme, on Wednesday nights, junior high and senior high. We got a great team serving and ministering to our junior high students and our high school students. And I'm just gonna tell you that that'll make a difference in your kids' lives, if you've got junior high, senior high students. And I know it's tough because there's other things going on. You know, when I was in McCook as a youth pastor, I coached basketball team in the, in the junior high and I made it to youth group on Wednesday night and I was the leader, I was the pastor, okay? So I was able to do both. We can, we can find a way to do both, right? We can find a way to do both. We need to because our kids need spiritual guidance and direction. Youth group's so good for them. And we have such a good team serving and ministering to our kids. Maybe your kids need to get there. Or you have some neighborhood kids. You know somebody that needs to get in youth group. We have Celebrate Recovery on Wednesday nights. It's designed to heal your heart. We all have wounds. We have hangups. We have habits. We get caught in addictions. We need help. And Celebrate Recovery is so powerful. We have such a good team there. God's using it to bring about miracles of healing in people's lives. Maybe you need to get to Celebrate Recovery. Maybe you need to bring somebody. We've got life groups. Life groups uh, through the fall campaign, like I said, are gonna study a lesson. They'll prepare you for the sermon so you get the most out of it. 
Thursday nights, if you're not in a life group, Pastor Ken and Christina are going to lead a life group upstairs. Um, they're going to have a great time. It, it, there can be 100 people can come to that, right? And then uh, they're going to go through the lesson and help you meet other people. And so uh, Thursday nights, 6 o'clock, come to that, and it'll help you grow through this campaign. You can do good in your life, but you need to be trained. And so we want you to get training um, through this fall campaign, I want to ask you as you leave a couple things. Get ready for this, right? There's somebody you know that needs to be here with you next week, all right? Listen, there's somebody that needs some Jesus. Our world's hurting right now. Our community's hurting. We're struggling. I'm hurting forever. I can feel it. It's, it's painful. There's so much um, tragedy and stress and the weight of the world's on everybody. But listen, this is a gift because when we're under pressure, we start looking for help. And so maybe there's somebody you've invited before, you've tried to get them here. They said, no, I don't, I don't go to church. God's not my thing. Maybe if you ask him this week, it'll be like, well, maybe I'll try that. Ah, I need something. What I've been doing isn't working. Could you be bold enough to invite somebody? You might have to use a little leverage because you know them. You might have to say, hey, let me come get you. Come on. You might have to ask a couple times. I don't know why, but we resist the help we need. <laughs> We're good at that. We might need to help somebody, use some leverage, get somebody here with you, right? I wanna encourage you, I wanna ask you to do that. Not for our church to be big, but so we can grow, we can help people in our community get connected to God. The series is called The Power of Perfect Love. Experiencing the power of perfect love. This is what's gonna change us is the love of God. So consider that also as you leave, there's some table, like I said out there, places to sign up to serve, consider serving. We're not asking you to serve all the time, once every couple months. Like it's not scary, it's not overwhelming, but it'll help you grow. Sign up for that life group on Thursday nights. Come and join in and get help and grow. That's what I want for you. Kickoff weekend is next weekend. God has some big things for us. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for our community, our church. God's going to use us to make a difference in this community. He wants to use you. First step might just be helping somebody get here and stay here and be around the goodness of God, the love of God, so they can get healed. God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for coming to this earth to die for us, to save us, to rescue us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to connect to you and your heart. Help us to help others in our community to discover who you really are. Lots of people have heard a lot of things about you, seen other people who claim to represent you who really don't. They've gotten hurt. And so, Father, I just pray you to help use us to bring healing, bring truth. I just pray over the next few weeks as we study your word and, and, uh, learn about what you've done and who you are. I just pray that you would use this to grow us and to help us become those people who can help bring change, restoration, and life into our community. We pray all this in Jesus' name.